Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. This is Lincoln from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. And while you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Howdy, Glenn. Uh, Another week has gone by for the listeners, but it's just the next day for for us. I know. Two and one. uh, We haven't done that for a while. Absolutely. But it's good. We need to get ahead of the game here. So Yeah. All right, so first order of business, uh, a big thank you to a couple of new Patreon subscribers, uh, to Julie and to Cami. Thank you guys very much for uh, joining our our little uh, podcast here and for your contribution. And uh, I, you know, I hope um, yeah, even more uh, people join up. Uh, and for the holiday season, you know, uh, send us a couple bucks uh, to help us keep the uh, the show alive. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, we also have some merchandise, like we mentioned in the last episode. Uh, we've got some stuff up on our website, doubleloop.com, uh, that references back to Azzle, where everything's created. We got t-shirts and coffee mugs and shot glasses and ties, uh, all sorts of different things uh, that you guys can uh, can grab for friends and family for the holidays or just for yourself, because you, you, you need to get yourself a Christmas present, too. Yeah, get a gyro t-shirt. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, next thing I want to mention is uh, something that, um, from uh, Michael White, uh, our our web guru. I put together our new doubleloopodcast.com. Um, he wanted me to mention on the show a conference that, uh, that they host down there in New South Wales, the Fingerprint Experts Conference. Uh, they just had that uh, a few weeks ago at the beginning of November, and uh, it's so it sounds like it's every other year, so there's plenty of time to plan for the next one. But uh, they got a lot of guests, and uh, he wanted me to mention it out here to you know our entire listening audience, uh, so that uh, you know, just kind of word of the event uh, you know, spreads out there a little bit more. Um, but they had on some of the speakers, uh, uh, Jason Tangent and Matt Thompson, who we've discussed their articles before on multiple episodes of the show. Uh, Gianni Ribeiro, uh, you know, we've had on the show. At least once or twice. Yeah, twice, I think. Yeah, twice. And uh, I think another, I think also had um, uh, Mackenzie Delahunty. Is that right? Oh, yeah, Delahunty. I, I interviewed her when I was down there uh, regarding physical development. That's right. Looks like a great group of uh, speakers. So if uh, you have any interest in uh, a conference down under, uh, take a look for that. You know, fall of 2021 is when it looks like the next one. Um, will be so uh, with that while you're at it just i'll mention this in 2020 next year in september they have the international association of forensic science it's this tri-annual conference every three years it goes around the world and they're having a big one there it's a pretty big deal it's in sydney i know a bunch of people from my my office are trying to go and i'm trying to get down there and a few other folks i know so it's a big it's a pretty big thing and they're they're great hosts down there absolutely i've it's on my calendar and i'm hoping to submit something for presentation you know it's just with the new job just uh, seeing if if i can um you know get time to uh, to head down there as well but uh that'd be fantastic and and uh uh yeah keep an eye out for the um IAFS is that right yes IAFS so i think we're ready to to jump right into the guest uh today and uh, his paper uh big double podcast welcome to uh Brendan Max 
from the uh, law office of the Cook County Public Defender. Brendan, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to be here. And as I always say in front of forensic audiences, it's way more exciting and interesting to, for me to have conversations with forensic examiners and that community, oftentimes in my legal community. So uh, I'm 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 pretty excited to be here. Thanks, guys. No, we appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. What are the lawyers just not uh, not exciting? The TV shows make it look, you know, like, you know, so uh, like that's the place to be is, in, you know, with all the lawyers <laughs> at the bar. Yeah, but I've been doing it for 20 <laughs> years, so I've heard everything at the bar. And uh, it's great to hear um, your guy's side of the of the uh, equation. So it's much more exciting for me that got way. It, got it. I, t- I totally understand. So uh, I, I'll I'll start with just a little bit of history and reminder for for listeners. Uh, you'd have to go back probably a couple of years in the episodes. Uh, I don't know, maybe two years ago, Eric, when we first brought up Cook County and talked about it a little bit. I had, I had right. gone there. I had, I had done some private cases. I got. Uh, Somehow, through various connections, ended up uh, getting retained by Brendan on some cases, reviewed some cases in that neck of the woods, and came back and talked a little bit on air about some of the things I had seen, some things I had been disturbed by, some things that I was surprised what were going, you know, was these things were going on in this day and age, and post NAS report and post all the challenges that have been coming, it, it was a little bit of walking back old school going, wow, I, I was surprised that some of the things were, were going on that way. And uh, t- we talked about them a little bit on the air and some other things and some back and forth. And then just very recently, there was an article that I think we even mentioned on air was going to be coming out and it did come out in JFI. And it, it was going to cause a bit of a stir because, as Brennan will talk about here in a moment, it was three attorneys who had taken the Collaborative Testing Services CTS proficiency test that many accredited laboratories in the United States participate in for fingerprint comparison examinations. Uh, They had uh, purchased a test. They had participated in it. And, well, we'll talk about the results here in a moment. (laughs) But they published the results in the JFI. And it's caused a little bit of a stir in the community and whipped up a little little bit of interest and frenzy in various circles. So so before we get into the article, I, w- I wanted to back up just a little bit and and kind of do what we we you know typical double loop podcast welcome. Uh, Brendan, you know, see you work in the forensic science division of the uh, public defender's office. So uh, usually our our question is how you know to our guest how did you fall into the fingerprint discipline because usually the stories are all different and and no one from grade school wants to be a latent print examiner. There's always a path that kind of leads there. Uh, but how did you end up in the forensic science division? Most lawyers kind of try to shy away from the science, but what led you there? Um, yeah. So what qualified me to be in our uh, public defender forensic science division was um, flunking uh, first year chemistry in college. <laughs> so that got me off to a, a great start in my uh, science career. But aside from that, in the uh, late 90s, my office became the first public defender office in the country to have a dedicated forensic unit. I was one of the um, original attorneys in it. Um, I was in that unit for a number of years before I left to do uh, other litigation within the office. And then in uh, 2014, I returned to the forensic science division to um, head it up to become the chief. 
When I did that in 2014, uh, myself and the seven or eight lawyers in that division were only focused on the litigation of DNA evidence, and that was our sole focus. And then um, I took over in 2014, and by 2015 and 16, we started to broaden our scope, um, in part, I think, because of some of the more robust research that had come out in other fields, such as, you know, the fingerprint discipline, I think in part spurred on by, you know, the NAS report and others. Um, But we started diving into that science. We started becoming very interested in it. We got our hands on all of the fundamental literature in uh, fingerprints, as well as ballistics and a couple other disciplines. And then our litigation around fingerprints really happened on kind of a two-track way in that um, there's really two crime labs who operate within Chicago and handle um, uh, fingerprint comparisons. One of them, uh, we have uh, never filed an admissibility motion or any type of challenge to. Um, I think uh, one of these lab, one of the labs has very um, well-trained examiners and they do very um, competent work, very good work. And then we um, turned our attention to the um, police department and we found a, a pretty stark contrast between um, their operation, their methods, and um, and their com- and their comparison work um, to that of the state police, and that really the difference between what we saw as kind of a high functioning, um, competent lab um, versus the police department lab and our investigation of them. That's what really got us kind of interested um, more deeply in fingerprints. Hey, Brendan, I'm going to ask the question because I have a feeling that there will be some listeners who it, it would be helpful for hear, for them to hear why it's important. Because if I know some of our listeners, their first reaction will be, well, did you find any erroneous identifications in, those ag- in, in that agency? Because mm-hmm. if you didn't find any what they're going to call as the mistakes, then how can you really challenge them? Is it really appropriate? Uh, Can you speak a little bit to the legal requirement for uh, the methodology, reliable principles, and some of the other important legal issues that you guys are tackling as opposed to, quote unquote, the accuracy of the identification? Uh, Sure. So in terms of admissibility, um, the admissibility rules in Illinois don't necessarily revolve around whether um, in any one particular case there is a false positive or a mistake. Um, the legal standards are different. So one of them, uh, one of the most important ones, is whether the methods you are using are generally accepted. So are you using methods that other people use that are found to be reliable, that are accepted in the field? So that's that's one of the, the main uh, legal standards. Um, and that is not a question of whether there's a false positive in any particular case. It's a question of the function of your lab and its methodology. Are you up, up to standards? Are you using best practices or at least good practices? So that's, that's one grounds upon which we investigate and sometimes challenge forensic evidence, including fingerprint evidence. The other grounds, though, are um, whether the way in which an examiner will express their conclusions whether whether those expressions of opinion or conclusion are misleading or overstate or somehow mislead the jury into into um, having a false view of either the fingerprint evidence or the strength of it. So when we look at investigate, let's say a lab like the Chicago Police Department fingerprint lab, we're obviously interested in whether there's mistakes being made, false positives and other mistakes. Just in terms of f- sheer numbers, I mean, it's 
hard to come by those. So, you know, if you don't do 100 cases a year, let's say we're handling 15 or 20 cases, maybe the chances of finding an outright false positive aren't that great. But that doesn't mean that there aren't legal standards that apply that could nonetheless be important to either exclude or limit the testimony of a fingerprint examiner. And I guess this is a good time for me to say that I'm a believer in fingerprint evidence. I've never once filed a motion that said um, the discipline of of, uh, fingerprints is not scientific or that fingerprint evidence when done right by competent examiners is is not um, reliable evidence. In fact, I think it is. It's just that we have found that when it's handled in a lab that um, does not seek to use best practices, does not seek to train its examiners well, does not have any of the indicia of a well-functioning lab, then that's the type of challenges we make. So um, I think it's important for your audience to know that I'm a believer in the reliability and and validity of fingerprint evidence. And I really think that actually did come across in the article. So I'm glad you said that here, even at the beginning. So let's actually get into uh, into the article. It was in the uh, the JFI, uh, the IAI's publication, uh, earlier this year, and it's titled Assessing Latent Print Proficiency Tests, Lofty Aims, Straightforward Samples, and the Implications of Non-Expert Performance by you and uh, your colleagues, Joseph Cavies and Richard Gutierrez. Uh, I guess to end the suspense, if, if any listener out there hasn't read this article, uh, the three of you each took a CTS proficiency test and you uh, each were able to work through uh, reporting out uh, conclusions, making no erroneous identifications on the proficiency test. And you each had a, a missed identification where you'd mark down not identified uh, when the the true source was in there. Uh, and it was all the same sample that you missed that one on, correct? Uh, yep, that's right. So we all missed, the, I think I think it was Q11. Right. So uh, so then the, the question the article then really poses is, uh, is this proficiency test, you know, the, the most commonly used one, especially in the U.S., a, a good test for latent print examiners when even uh, attorneys that haven't gone through that entire training process can do this well uh, and not make any erroneous identifications? Yeah, so that was kind of the, the, the question behind this project. And when it first started, one of the things that you know, as attorneys, we always do is we look to the research. So one of the first things we did when we started wondering about the rigorousness of these tests, and we started wondering in the context of the fact that, or in the context that we had what we thought was a um, substandard lab with examiners who we didn't feel were trained very well. We believe that because we interviewed them and cross-examined them, and they seemed to be unfamiliar with most of the important fundamental literature in the field, unfamiliar with certain important concepts in the field, such as close non-matches. And so we are asking ourselves, these examiners don't seem to be the cream of the crop, and yet uh, they report on their CVs that they score 100% on CTS tests year in and year out. So the question for us at that point was, well, how good are these tests how rigorous are they and how consistent with casework are they? Are they representative of what examiners are doing uh, in the lab? Uh, we tried to turn to the research in the field, but frankly, when we started this project in about 2017 and signed up for the 2018 CTS test, there was little to no research from within the discipline out there about 
the value or rigorousness of, of, of proficiency tests in general or CTS tests. There's a little discussion of it in the human factors report, but we found little else in the field where people within the discipline had taken a critical look at these tests and asked important questions like, um, are these tests working? Are they important? Are, are they um, useful quality assurance tools? Are they calibrated to identify breaking points in the method and examiners? So really, when we found a combination of what we felt was a lack of, of critical analysis out there, as well as a surprising uh, passage rate from not only the examiners in our local area, but um, nationwide, we thought, well, why don't we take a test, see how they see how rigorous or not rigorous they are and kind of assess it from there. And so um, we were off and running in 2018 as we signed up for the test. Glenn, let me ask you a question here real quick. I know your your agency, when you were working for Minnesota, used CTS tests for proficiencies. Do you, do you recall when that started? Did, did, was that before even your time when they first signed up for CTS, or was it somewhere in between? So as, as far as I can recall, I, I think the agency might have started using CTS when they first came out in 1995 or so, uh, because I believe we participated in the, the infamous 95 test that had that 22% error rate. Right. But th- that said, yeah, they, they have been using it for, for as long as I, I could recall. And from time to time, as startup companies or other potential vendors would pop up offering a test, we often would say, hey, we'll, you know, we'll participate. So occasionally we had examiners participate in trial runs with some of the other ones, you know, such as the offered by Ron Smith and Associates. And then there were a couple others from companies, including one in Minnesota that was going to be a proficiency test competitor for the other ones. But when proficiency tests were required, when the proficiency test providers were required to be accredited themselves by accredited right. agencies, I think some of the people that were getting in the game went, all right, we're out. This is going to be too much of a nightmare to be able to construct a test with these sorts of restrictions on it, which is one of the things I don't know if we ever dug in before. It was really problematic that you have these tests, but you can't have an inconclusive result because because of the accreditation requirements for the proficiency test provider, they must have a positive or negative answer, and they can't have multiple answers per their own requirements to be accredited, which I, I find ridiculous. I think there, wow. I think the accreditation requirements need to be changed. It doesn't make any sense that you can't have – you can't recreate the kinds of scenarios that you have in the laboratory, which are sometimes you have disagreements and sometimes multiple answers may be acceptable. I I find it mind boggling that the proficiency test can't mirror the actual practice and scenarios that we actually do encounter. Well, we'll get to in Brandon's article is the kind of three things that he points out uh, that that these tests are lacking three types of examples you know, that may lead to uh, a higher risk of error, which you would normally encounter as a regular part of casework. I didn't realize that that was, you know, really precluded simply because of the accreditation requirements on 
the test provider themselves. Yeah, I've heard Ron Smith say that publicly. Uh, I've also heard CTS make those statements before because one of the things I would raise wow. every single test, I would have comments to the point where my bosses were in QA manager were getting pretty annoyed because I was starting <laughs> to get kind of snotty after the third or fourth iteration about here's why I think your tests are, you know, are, are inappropriate because they're not they don't even allow for me to use the swig fast uh, language that is available. They don't represent, you know, and I, I would put my comments every test and, and my bosses will look at it and go, uh, you need to tone this down a little bit and calm down a little bit, Glenn. But after 10 years of complaining and seeing that nobody was doing anything, the response I kept getting from either the, the well, from basically the vendors was, look, our hands are tied. If we want to be an accredited vendor providing these proficiency tests, we have to do it this way. And I, and again, I keep coming back to them. We need to change the rules. You know, we, they could be changed and there's a good reason to change them. So, Brandon, why don't you speak on this? You know, the I'm sure you're familiar, the, you know, the, the standard, at least currently for most labs across uh, the country, is uh, identification, inconclusive and exclusion, three possible conclusions. Um, and OSAC has come out with a, a new draft standard. With a five conclusion scale, yet uh, CTS all these uh, all these proficiency tests uh, from CTS have just this binary choice of identified or not identified, which harkens back to at least the two thousands and before. Yes. So from my perspective, I'm a little surprised that the uh, reporting requirements for CTS are so stringent on the fingerprint tests, because I can tell you that uh, I have taken their DNA interpretation test, and they allow way more latitude to describe your conclusions the way you want to in the DNA context than in the fingerprint. And if you look at, for instance, a summary report of the DNA results for a CTS test, um, they accommodate a wide range of conclusions from different statistics offered uh, and different language used. Some people reporting uh, results in terms of random match probabilities, others reporting results in terms of likelihood mm. ratios. So it seems strange to me that CTS would be so rigid on how fingerprint examiners report the results and yet give DNA examiners free reign to report as they wish. You know, that's a good point. Because I actually reviewed uh, some CTS test data this afternoon from from the DNA uh, forensic biology section, and you're right, they were some were reporting a, a statistic from uh, whatever software they used to come up with those numbers, uh, and some were saying most were still saying included or excluded, but then some uh, had also said inconclusive. So now again, this may be a, a matter of. Yeah, you can say that, but the correct answer is either included or excluded. Glenn, do you know how that all works? No, I, I don't. Uh, okay. Uh, Brendan, in fact, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell this, the story about taking the DNA uh, proficiency test? It's actually one of my favorites. Yeah, so, uh, you know, although I feel like I did pretty well in the fingerprint test, 11 out of 12, I, I won't say that it wasn't without its challenge. It took time for me to do it. I'd never done the searching function across multiple fingerprints before, and I found that a bit challenging. So uh, although I think I did pretty well. I think, I think you're, you're pronouncing that incorrectly. Cha no, it's pronounced fun. Oh, fun. <laughs> not, not challenging. That's fun. I'll tell you that when I took the DNA interpretation test, 
I was surprised how easy it was, even compared to the fingerprint one. In fact, when I got done with what I thought was the first part of the test and was ready to move on to question two, that's when I realized I had completed the whole test. So um, <laughs> in many ways, the, the DNA uh, CTS test was far more simplistic than the fingerprint one. Jeez, oh, I was going to save this towards the end, but now I'm really curious. Are you looking at actual peaks on the, the graphs or is it just, is it, are the numbers kind of there and you just match up? Yep, that's a 1310 and yep, that's a 1310. No, they give you electropharograms for the peaks on their graph. They give okay. you electropharograms to interpret. Um, but the scenarios they give are pretty straightforward and they were relatively easy to interpret. Does that mean there's going to be a, a follow-up paper, Brendan, on uh, the DNA proficiency test? We might be turning our proficiency test um, participation into a little cottage industry, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually now super curious to, you know, as you go through and maybe even do more, you know, ranking the difficulty for a non-expert in everything on the difficulty of these different tests. Yeah, so we're um, planning in 2020 to um, expand into probably one other type of test, probably the ballistic casing uh, matching test, and we'll keep you updated on how that goes. I, I've heard a little bit about that one. I've actually heard that the the handwriting question document one could be challenging because they used to have some, uh, quite a wide range of different things. It wasn't always matching handwriting. Sometimes they'd have various uh, kinds of uh, evidence that need to be examined microscopically or with uh, electrostatic deposition apparatus as to some of the other instruments. So I, I, I remember question document examiners talking about those could from time to time be be challenging because there would be such a wide array of different kinds of exams they'd have to do. Yeah, and the ballistic one will be a little bit of a technical challenge for yeah. us because uh, you're sent actual casings and we'll have to get our hands on a comparison microscope and figure out how to do that. It's stuff that we've never done before, but we're really interested in trying. No, I, I can definitely see that as a, as a, as a challenge. Yep. So, in fact, if we could go back and why don't we discuss, because Eric and I were having a little discussion earlier uh, off air about something that you had said, too, when it came to the performance. And we'll we'll get into this and Eric and I will share some, some opinions here. But you had mentioned the performance on the test for you and uh, Joey and Richard, uh, basically 11 out of 12. No false positives, but a false negative. Um, and all the same one that you guys had missed. I have a couple of questions here. The first one, I'll give you a chance to address because there was a follow-up article that I that came out in the JFI and I thought you handled really well and kind of turned some things around. But there was a, a reader who accused you guys of collusion, uh, found it suspicious that you guys had had you know, all the same one. Why don't you take a, a moment here to address that? So in that letter to the editor, the author um, essentially alleged uh, some collusion on our part that we got together and did these together and somehow pooled our answers. And uh, that wasn't the case. He also claimed that um, because it took us about a month to complete the test that somehow we had done something wrong. But we, uh, the three of us, first of all, we each purchased our own our own um, kit. So we didn't have the same user number or the same um, test documents. We had individual ones. Second of all, it took us each somewhere around three weeks or a month or five weeks because we were working these comparisons into our otherwise 
fairly busy um, litigation schedule. And what that meant was that we I was just going to say, I mean, that's no different than a fingerprint examiner. I'm not like when they hand it to me, they don't expect it to, you know, me to give it to them the next morning. I get six to eight weeks. Yeah. Often I would wait <laughs> to the last day before I would do the test, yeah. but I had six to eight weeks to work it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's quite true because we have a busy schedule of other things to do, real casework. Me personally, I was doing, you know, one comparison one day and then trying another the next day and circling back to the first one a couple of days later, what it meant was that we were all doing these in different times and spaces. Um, the fact that we all missed the same one, I get it, might raise suspicion. The only thing I can tell you is that from kind of our research, not only on this test and others, it seems very common that errors cluster around a particular comparison, one or two comparisons. Yep. In fact, uh, for sure, that was no different with this test, where the one that we missed was the one that was missed by most. And I can tell you that the most challenging part for us was the searching function, was trying to take the scrap of Leighton and search across four print cards and find it. And I think that that one particular Leighton print um, posed a little bit harder of a searching function for us. I mean, to step back a second, what we normally do in fingerprint cases is is we've, we've got a crime lab examiner who's given us a print, the one that he says, he or she says, um, is the one, and we just compare the latent to usually our client's, you know, thumb or fourth or, you know, or finger and ask ourselves, you know, are we convinced that there's an association here? So we almost never engage in this searching function, which is kind of one of the most important parts of this proficiency test. And so, yes, we, uh, we failed that one, uh, but not at all because we colluded. Hey, did did you guys have loops or magnifiers? Um, we bought some uh, little plastic held handheld jeweler <laughs> uh, micro magnifiers. We did our comparisons off the paper copy. We weren't sophisticated enough to use the digital copies, and we had two. Okay. We had two like eight dollar jeweler magnifiers that we bought off of Amazon to kind of help us along the way. That, I can just picture it now, and and probably pencils or or something as pointers to keep track of where you're at we had the 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 jeweler mic uh, uh magnifiers and a couple sharpies and that's how at least i know i i went about my business and if you think about it i mean like even we go back to the 2010 cts test that had all those um misidentifications i mean it's just a ridiculous comment for that that writer to uh to to say because the almost 30 percent of people that all missed that one obviously didn't collude it was all over the whole you know base so you know all the examiners taking the test that year so uh, that's you know far from evidence that uh, of collusion yeah, and, and just one, one final comment on that. I mean, lawyers are used to posing hypotheticals to experts on the stand. So, I mean, hypothetically, if we did collude, is it that much better that three assistant public <laughs> defenders who have never done this before pooled, pooled their, their small amount of forensic knowledge and, and did as well as we did? I mean, I don't think that that argument advances the discussion around whether this test is as good as it should be. Oh, good point. So on on that point, in fact, about the you know working together, I, I can't remember if if you addressed it either in one of in your response to the letter or you and I have just talked about this before. But this is a good time to get this out for for our listeners. 
So one of the things that I, I think was raised was how different agencies handle CTS verification. So for example, you and Joey and Richard all worked independently doing ACE. And when you reported your conclusions, they were ACE, ACE conclusions. Whereas labs like Minnesota, and I can think of others, Arizona, what they report are ACE V. So if I was given a proficiency test, I would write down all my answers independently and then give it to a verifier. And it would be an open verification. He would get my report, he would get my conclusions, and then he would go through and verify that all my exclusions, all my identifications were correct. Because in many laboratories, they look at the proficiency test as not just testing the examiner, but the entire process. And so our results were always the result of technically one person doing the exam, but another checking it. And so one would argue, is that collusion or is that, you know, a, a valid testing of the actual ACE-V process? And quite frankly, I, it's one of the things I love talking to examiners in the field about because many different agencies have very different views on how this should be approached. No. And CTS or any other vendor have never taken a stand and said, you must do this independently and cannot have another person involved. Thoughts on this, Eric or Brand, uh, Brendan? Yeah, I definitely have views on this. So, and they they stem from the fact that when examiners testify to their qualifications in court, when they talk about their training, their background, their experience, the number of times they've testified as an expert and qualified, and then they say, "And I've taken and passed CTS tests X number of years." I've never once heard an examiner say. I've done that in conjunction with a verifier. It's always been, this is my individual performance and you can take my, the results on this test to mean that those are my scores. Not that I've had this verified um, and that, you know, I don't know if there's some resolution process in that verification, if differences of opinion arise. It can. My first inkling that this was going on, that there were either groups doing this or that there's a verification process such that the results were not necessarily the um, input of just one examiner was this paper that came out in the Journal of Forensic Sciences uh, earlier this year in 2019, where I guess um, this organization CSAFE linked up with CTS. And for the first time, they, they uh, had a survey with the test and took some, uh, some demographic and other information. And what they reported there was that about two thirds of participants in the CTS fingerprint test say that they use a verification process. So that was a little shocking to me. And I think that any lab that takes that approach, they need to make that clear and more transparent when examiners are testifying because attorneys and judges are taking their testimony to mean that um, these CTS results are, are an indicator of their individual competency, not the methodological reliability of ACE-V. So to me, Interesting. that's problematic, especially if it's not transparent. No, I, I totally agree that I do understand where labs are coming from when they set it up this way, where they, you know, because the language that comes down to the labs, I believe even from uh, the accreditation is that is these words that the a proficiency test should you know mimic casework. So they take that to mean, OK, it's going to go through the uh, the evidence unit. I'm going to check it out like a case. I'm going to do a chain of custody. I'm going to write a, re I'm going to take notes. I'm going to write a report. 
And in all of that includes a verification. And, and make sure then you say not identified. Well, exactly. <laughs> and now, in, oh, I mean, uh, to be fair, though, in, in, when I was back at Arizona, our reports that we wrote up used our, our, our agency language, and then we just checked the box on the form for not identified. But I, no, I, I totally take your point, Brendan, that if that's the case, if that's what you're actually testing, maybe and maybe you have a good reason for having the test be of the whole system, fine, but testify that way. Make that clear to the, you know, the other stakeholders in this process. Yeah, and one other way I look at it is, so in court, judges and attorneys um, look at uh, performance on proficiency tests similar to the way they look at certification as an individual examiner competency assessment. I think we would all be shocked if we were to find out that in the certification process, you're allowed to get the help of a verifier. Um, we, we, I think we would all expect that that certification process is an individual one. In the same way, um, if it's not spelled out, if there's not transparent, we all expect that, at least in the, in the justice system, we expect that that's an indicator of individual competency. So that's kind of the lens through which we see it, which is why um, those survey results in the JFS article were were eye-opening to me. Now, along these these lines, it does get into some subtleties here. So I'm just going to go back to my experience working in Arizona and so a few years ago, there was an examiner who who you know took the test, gave it to the verifier, and the verifier you know disagreed with an answer, and the verifier decided that the best step was to you know not not to get involved or to like you know point out the right answer because that would you know kind of seem a little shady, but to just hand the whole test back and ask the examiner to look at it again the exam without you know again without pointing out what whichever even which sample there was disagreement on so that examiner looked at it again found sample that they wanted to change their answer on did so and that was all clear in the notes documented that the answer changed and all recorded uh, throughout that process going through qa was involved in that process and was initially deemed okay everything's fine here you know, moving, let's move forward. When that whole packet was reviewed by the uh, ANAB or Ask Cloud Lab, I can't remember how long ago it was, but basically the same organization. They, uh, in reviewing that whole process, deemed that, and sorry, just to, to be clear, that was a, a miss. Uh, it wasn't a bad idea. It was a missed identification, like the, the error you made, that then got corrected to an identification with a second chance. Anyway, the accreditation body deemed, no, no, this doesn't count. This should have been marked as a fail, and the examiner has to retake another proficiency test. Your thoughts on, and I know, Glenn, you can talk about how it was handled very differently at your lab, a similar situation. Uh, so, any Glenn, do you want to tell your story, or Brendan, do you want to comment on, on this so far? Yeah, well, Brendan, why don't you comment, and then I'll come back. Yeah, I guess... I don't see taking a proficiency test as pass or fail. So if it's supposed to be a quality assurance tool, then when you have an examiner, let's say, who's got a false negative, who missed one, rather than give that examiner you know, a hint that they've done something wrong and try and get them to correct, I think the purpose of a quality assurance tool is to then try to identify what it was about that print and that examiner that caused them to miss it and maybe provide kind of retraining or other um 
remediation that will allow that examiner to succeed in that same type of print. So if you're going through a verification process and giving that examiner, let's say, a heads up that something's wrong and giving them a chance to redo it, I think you're diluting in some way the quality assurance value of that because that print has has caused confusion for that examiner and there should be some there should be some quality assurance step there that asks why did that happen is there something particular about this latent that makes it more challenging and if so is there a gap in training um and i think if you're kind of straightening th- things out through heads up through the verification process you might be missing that use of that false negative as a quality assurance tool. I could be wrong about that, but that's kind of the way I feel. That's a, that's a really good point. And, and it really reminds me back in 2010 with the, the CTS test that year that caused so many errors. It was all, it was like almost 30% of examiners taking it missed one sample, had a, a missed identification or an erroneous, not exclusion, I guess, but just a, a miss where they should have identified it. And I think there's a lot of value and I've used that specific example in training classes ever since because it's missing a core in Delta and it has an ambiguousness in the, it has connective ambiguity in, especially in the target groups that examiners would choose. But if you go back and I'm not sure if you've done this, Brandon, but if you go back and read through the uh, message board comments about that test sample on CLPEX, oh boy, (laughs) that was... That was not the the lesson that people were learning at the moment. It was blamed on all sorts of other things, the test design in particular, and not on you know what actually caused all these examiners to miss that sample. And there's a there's a great example of that in in the DNA community. So you take the the early two thousands, the DNA communities uh, flying away with mixture interpretation, not hesitating at all, interpreting complex mixtures. And then in 2013, NIST did a really challenging proficiency type test where they sent really challenging three and four person mixtures out to over 100 labs around the country. Uh, there were some samples uh, in that test where the majority of test takers got them wrong. And yes, there was consternation, wow. consternation at first, but it led to a lot of productive discussion in, in the DNA community. It led to a lot of changes in how mixture interpretation is done. It led to a lot of standardization and then kind of other movements to figure out other ways to either uh, reliably interpret complex mixtures or to leave them alone. So failure on a proficiency test, I don't think is a failure of the discipline. It's a good indicator of where things are and where things need to go. Well, but still no mixture interpretation on the CTS test for DNA? Uh, there is, but the CTS oh, test is, is the, the mixture interpretation, at least the one I took, was really simple. It was nothing like the NIST Got um, test from 2013. Glenn? Yeah, all right. So I, I've been listening and I have, had a few thoughts. Let's go back to the 2010 CTS test. So, Eric, as you said, you know, 30% of, of examiners, according to the CTS report, failed that. I have a little bit of inside knowledge here, and I actually think that number is much higher. I believe it was missed by a higher percentage than 30% of the participants. My laboratory and several others Uh. were guilty of this because in our laboratory, effectively three people took the test initially and three people acted as verifiers. So we had six people taking that test. Five of them missed that impression, and one of them actually found it and caught it during the verification. 
But when the quality manager had the op- – when this is just – we would always buy one test for the laboratory and each person would just take it you know, in, in turn. So unlike what, the, what you guys did in your office, Brendan, where you each bought you know, a copy and you had three copies, we only, we only had bought one copy. And so when the quality manager reviewed the results, six different examiners – Five of them say there's no match here, and one of them has found an identification, and in the end was correct about the identification. Guess which one they chose to report to CTS? Got it. The examiner who got it correct. So we're one of the laboratories in the 70% that had it correct when five out of six of us missed it. And and I know that there are other laboratories, some other large laboratories that had that same thing happen. So I, I actually do believe that that number – is much higher, and as you both pointed out, uh, is indicative of of things that needed fixing in the profession. But of course, CTS when they find a non consensus result, <laughs> what they do is they just remove it from the examination. They just discard it yep. because it's a non non consensus yeah. for the for the for the test takers. Whereas you're both spot on in my view. Just like the 1995 test, when 22 percent of people made an erroneous identification. The community reacted by going, well, the test was crap, and the people that took it shouldn't have been taking it, and we need to get rid of them. They shouldn't be in the field. So they kind of blame the examiners as opposed to looking at it going, we could learn something from this. It's identifying <laughs> a problem in the field. It's doing yeah. exactly what it should be doing, well, is identifying where there is a proficiency issue. And, you know, actually, I made a comment on the paper as I was reading through it. Brennan, you, you make a mention towards the end here about that, uh, about that miss on the 1995 test, all those misses there. And, and you say that, that the results there spurred on discussions and action in the latent print community. And I was going to be like, well, <laughs> I, 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 I would disagree with that. I don't think it spurred on, you know, the, the, the movement to develop national guidelines for training and quality assurance. I, I think it, it was like Glenn was saying, everyone really at the time dismissed it. And the, the wording was like, oh, you know, anybody can sign up to take the CTS test. So it was all these Correct. non-experts from outside the country that just signed up this year for some reason, and they all failed it and made us look bad. And then case closed, okay, no need to discuss this anymore at all. Right. When it identified a true problem with close non-matches that, of course, you know, we're seeing still today, that time examiners were unaware of how close they could be from two different people. Yeah, I guess maybe I was a little bit generous. Uh, I, I was excited. <laughs> I, I was excited to see that I could find at least one paper as a result of the 1995 test where somebody in the field wrote about the test, um, wrote about the results, David Greve. And so to me, it was the only indicator in the past 25 years that somebody within the discipline had kind of uh, asked the question, um, are these tests doing what they should? Yeah, I, I think it was David Grieve, The Possession of Truth, I think was the name of the article, 1996. That's it. That was the one, yep. All right, so the, the second point I want to come back to is something that you guys are both saying, and this is akin to what Eric and I were talking about a little bit off off air. Whether or not you would classify your performance, Brendan, or anyone's performance, like mine on the 2010 test, I missed 5e the latent print impression i was one of the five of six in my laboratory that missed it is that a fail right you know in your laboratory eric you know you talked about 
you know, what that what that would mean. And I know in my laboratory uh, and you said that recently ANAB would have looked at that as the examiner did fail the test, even though the verifier had caught it. The initial examiner failed and needed to retake the test. And I can't speak currently to how ANAB is handling these things. But I know in my laboratory, when I've missed, and I've actually missed two before on two different CTS tests. The very first one I took in the year 2000, like literally (laughs) right after I finished my training, it sucked. Two weeks later, I had a CTS test and missed one on there. And, and it was 5E. And then later in 2010, missed one on that <laughs> test, and it was 5E. So 5E has not been kind to me. And in both of those, if you were to pull my records from my laboratory, they would say that there was a nonconformance detected in the testing, uh, but there was a root cause analysis that was done. And Brendan, everything you said, why did I miss it? What, what, what are you training? What issues were raised? Were those resolved? Do we believe this person is still competent to do casework? Yes. Here's all the things we did to ensure that. Here are the cases that we reviewed to make sure this wasn't an ongoing thing. And it doesn't show that I failed those tests. In fact, it basically said performance satisfactory after addressing the nonconformance. I I don't consider, and this is what Eric and I were talking about off air, would someone consider your performance a fail on that CTS test? I certainly don't because I think it's a – even though you missed one, it would then in a laboratory trigger – if you have a quality assurance unit, now I'll do. But if you do, it's going to trigger a quality assurance review and all the things that you talked about. I don't see that as a fail. It's an opportunity for all the other things that are in play to to kick in as they should – if a proficiency test is really testing the system. What I was saying, and then also linking back to that 2010 test, uh, we, we were kind of the opposite of everyone who took it at my lab. We had uh, everyone got that one right, except for one person. And that person had to retake a different test. So basically that was at that time was by the, uh, the quality assurance department decided that. So basically deemed to have failed. So I guess the, the question then to you, Brandon, is you had also mentioned this idea of, of not really having a pass-fail. So then that kind of brings up the question of, well, when you go into court and let's say you do have an improved PT test you know, down the road at some point, what do you go in and testify? You know, if, if they ask you, do you take proficiency tests? Yes. But then there's, all, there's just implicit a follow-up of, well, did you pass or fail? Yeah. What, what are you envisioning for that? Yeah, so I think the pass-fail paradigm is just the wrong one for proficiency tests, especially if they are uh, supposed to be quality assurance tools. So if there's a more rigorous test, such as the the DNA 2013 test, there's going to be a lot of failure. But that doesn't mean that an examiner is not competent. It's just testing the outer bounds of the discipline and maybe setting some boundaries on where uh, – either the discipline or examiner should go. So I think the whole idea of pass-fail, especially if there's ever an environment where these tests are rigorous, um, just doesn't make sense. I guess my other comment would be, you know, both the the letter to the editor um, that was a result, response to our article, as well as, let's say, comments by the president of CTS in this uh, recent article that you mentioned that was published last week, both of them really kind of pounced on us for our false negative in this case, which I find pretty interesting because um, I've seen a lot of talk in the community, especially after the Miami-Dade study and the FDI black box studies, 
where there were significantly higher false negative rates than false positive rates. There's a lot of talk in the community about, well, that's acceptable because false negatives aren't really errors. False negatives don't falsely implicate somebody. They're not nearly as bad as false positives. And yet when me and my coworkers stumbled upon this false negative, all of a sudden, um, <laughs> you know, our letter to the editor is saying that we're letting serial killers go. And, <laughs> and, um, and the president of CTS is saying something similar. So to me, there's a, 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 a you can't, have that both ways. But um, in the end, I think this idea of passing or failing is not the right question with with these tests. Um, I think the right question is more um, the way that Glenn describes how his miss on a test was handled, which is you try and identify the root causes, you try and retrain and try and make the examiner stronger than they were before they took the test. So um, I don't believe that these tests are about passing and failing. Well, I mean, so, okay, just just going to go with that for now. A little devil's advocate here. I can imagine myself going into court and being asked about, you know, proficiency testing. Yeah, yeah, I'm proficiency tested every year. And I mean, just from just even the word proficiency testing, there's going to be a question of if you passed all of your proficiency tests. I can't imagine myself then following that up with, well, proficiency test isn't really a pass fail kind of thing. It's an opportunity for improvement. Right. That that feels, uh, yeah, and maybe it's just a matter of kind of learning what that new paradigm is going to be, and then testifying it, you know, into the correct way. But you know, so there's that whole thing of, you know, I mean, how do you go in court and say that a proficiency test doesn't have a a failure, but just a, a way to improve? And then maybe they follow yeah. up with, well, did you need to improve? And then to the extreme, I mean, how many erroneous IDs? Uh, can one examiner make before they're, you know, it's not a matter of needing to improve, but just, no, you just, you just, you just didn't pass the test. Sure. So right now the way testimony goes with regard to proficiency tests isn't all that illuminating given, at least in my opinion, how easy the tests sure. are. So examiners come in and say, you know, I pass these, I do really well. That leaves the jury um, maybe with an incomplete um, understanding of what that means. What it might mean is that in the easier cases that are encountered in casework, you can trust me, I'm good. But let's say we enter the environment of a more challenging test. I think it'll lead to more meaningful and accurate testimony about proficiency tests because you can go, you can go in and when you're asked about a proficiency test, you can say, yeah, on, on the 2020 version, uh, I did miss one question. But I'll tell you that the question I missed or the comparison I missed involved tonal reversal. That is not in play in this case. Tonal reversals are a bit more challenging, and we find that examiners miss more. But the latent print in this case is not totally reversed. So that challenging part of that test is not at play here. Or I missed print that was left in blood, which made it a little bit more challenging to identify ridges and features. And by the way, the print in this case is not in blood. So I think it that type of testimony, if you're kind of, if you're being more descriptive about um, your hits and misses on a CTS test, I think that gives the jury a much more accurate indication of kind of your performance of as an examiner and also can help neutralize maybe misses on a CTS test in challenging prints that aren't at play in the casework at hand. To me, uh, that interchange at, at trial is more meaningful for um, the jury than um, I took this easy test and passed it. And, and you're screwed if it 
is in blood and this case is a a bloody impression <laughs> well if that's the case then you either have to show that you've um that you've improved or maybe that print should yeah. go to somebody who's better at comparing blood prints you know yeah it, it's it's completely relevant to the case and maybe jurors should know that you're not the best at blood prints i, I would find that to be relevant information that should be brought out so and this all relates back to the the newspaper the news article from the, the intercept the, that that came out a couple yes. weeks ago, that and that was my first initial reaction to it was was the the in that initial paragraph the uh, the author there you know deemed that to be you know you guys to have passed the test and also to have nearly aced it and that was that was for me very frustrating because again going back to the policy that we had for the two missed IDs in Arizona that, that I was aware of both in those situations, those examiners were deemed to have failed the test. And uh, overall, uh, I think that whether you, however you judge pass or fail for that uh, missed ID situation, that that's kind of a, a secondary point to you guys got, you know, 11 out of the 12, uh, correct. And all these identifications correct. The identifications are all fairly easy, and we all know that they are. And changes need to be made into the decisions that we're making and how to grade the test overall besides just the final answer. Yeah, and I think that term like nearly aced or passed, that was probably used in a layman term. Since, you know, I don't work at a lab, I'm not privy to how, you know, each individual lab reacts to mistakes on a proficiency test. I would say that that term was probably used in a layman sense. Um, and, you know, I, I think overall it's just more important. I mean, one of the important parts that I think of our participation is not just how we did, but that in participating, we were able to see the types of latents that were involved in the test and kind of talk about the, challenging types of latent comparisons that were not part of that test. So um, I think our participation is one thing, right. but uh, I think kind of our review of the fact that there were no cl- close nine matches, I'm surprised that there were any false positives on that test because I didn't see anything that looked like a close nine match. You know, the fact that uh, most of the latent prints involved had, you know, a sufficiently high number of features. None of them were down around the seven or eight feature threshold that might cause some examiners uh, a little bit of quandary about whether to move forward with an identification or not. Like, those are the types of things that we didn't encounter on that test. So, you know, I don't know how you describe our performance, whether it's pass or fail. But I think, um, you know, one important thing is that at least we don't, we think that we kind of identify the fact that um, there are challenging parts of the latent print comparison um, discipline that were not represented in that test. And to, you know, to be fair, that's what the article, uh, you know, the news article said, your paper uh, in looking through it, you guys never say pass or aced or failed. You just don't use those words at all throughout your article. Yeah, I think we just gave the data and then we talked about why we felt the test was not representative of casework. And, you know, I've had discussions with people in in the field and in debates at conferences who have said that my position is that 
this test is easy because we got 11 out of 12 and that's our point. But our point is not just that it was easy because we got 11 out of 12. It was easy because we didn't encounter the types of complicated things that you encounter in casework. That's kind of the the, the more important take-home message, I think, from our paper. Right. Yeah, there's no distortion. There's no borderline suitability, sufficiency, seven, eight pointers, like you said. And there's no close on matches. And I would add in a fourth one that in virtually every test, so I, I'm not exactly sure about this one, but in virtually every test except the one in 2010 uh, and one earlier this year in 2019, there are no latents. Um, there are no latent uh, non-matches that don't have a delta or a core in them. And that's another thing that's been identified uh, through black box, white box research uh, as something that could lead to error is that lack of core delta. And, and, you know, finally, in an environment where so much of the work is APHIS-based, so so many of the cases we get are APHIS searches that result in, you know, in APHIS hits, the failure to include close non-matches in the test is just a glaring problem because, you know, in APHIS, you encounter close non-matches more than you would in kind of side-by-side comparisons. And the fact that that's not tested on CTS tests, to me, is perhaps the biggest problem of all with the test. Great point. Yeah. If we had actually paid attention in 1995 to that issue of close non-matches, right. then we likely wouldn't have had the Brennan Mayfield mistake happen you know, less than 10 years later. Yeah, the field would have had you know 20 years since then to figure out how to deal with uh, effectively and reliably close non-matches rather than, you know, decide not to think about it. You know, one of the things that I observed when I was in China was their proficiency testing program. And I was really impressed with it. I don't think, Eric, we've ever talked about this before, but it is, it is, it was something to behold. I mean, because they've got, I mean, tens of thousands of <laughs> practitioners. Print examiners, right. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's, it's incredible how many they have across, you know, all the different, uh, regions of, of China, the provinces, but they've got this national proficiency testing program that they all participate in. And it's it's a pretty big endeavor. I mean, I can see that it costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of manpower, but, uh, you know, they, I don't remember how many they have to do, six or eight, you know, comparisons or whatever it might have been. But as you had alluded to earlier, Eric, part of the test was not just is it a match or not? Is it an identification or an exclusion? But what is your documentation? What was your analysis? How did you word it? How did you report everything? And so they show got, your work. Yeah, they basically have the same thing that you've got for grade school when you know grading your essays. You've got these readers who read grade school exams and then they basically grade them. And they've got the exact same setup there. And I don't think it would be that difficult to do in the U.S. And we could use the same system that we use for college entry essays or grade school standardized testing essay exams, those kinds of things where you hire a bunch of readers to go through these. But I mean, it, it, it definitely is more involved, but then you could also evaluate documentation. You could evaluate it against national standards, SWIGFAST standards and other things. And you could also show what was done during analysis versus comparison and not just a checkbox, yes or no. And I, and I think like you were alluding to, that's really lacking because if there are problems, if there are errors without that level of documentation, how, how can you even know where the problem was to begin with? Oh, and I think a lot of times quality assurance departments, 
are barely able to you know keep up or barely big enough to keep up with just the yes or no answers much less grading a whole thing yeah but uh, even more so another solution could be you know what they talk about actually in later on in the uh, that intercept article where uh, about introducing uh, proficiency test samples surreptitiously into casework yeah sure which is also difficult because i mean the whole of the quality assurance department is to prevent you know fake evidence from getting into the system but that's a whole nother ball of wax to unravel yeah and if i could chime in there are solutions here so i don't just want to be somebody who says that you know i think this test is broken and and leave it to others to figure out but there i mean there are solutions to try to make this test more valuable and rigorous i mean i think maybe the um swafford and kurtner article points a little bit in that direction where they're able to use lq metrics to suss out the quality and i guess then complexity of sets of cts um, prints versus casework prints that's one thing there's a really interesting mm-hmm. there's a really interesting article um last year in law probability and risk by alubian cadane where they talk about using uh, item response theory, which is a very common theory um, uh, practice used in uh, by educate educators in in um, uh, test making to make sure that tests are rigorous. It's a way that you can then uh, using item response theory you can compare performances across different proficiency tests because you're actually not only grading the examiners who take it, you're grading the tests and how difficult question to question they are. Um, so there are solutions to this, to what I think is a problem, but the field has to kind of um, first believe that these tests could be better and then um, work collectively on find, finding ways to make it happen. Fair. Well, let me ask you this, as I'm trying to, to to look for that that example, right, that we can really latch onto as an example for our field to head in that direction. So, and you mentioned a few examples there, which are which are great, but... Can do you either of you have an example of a field of experts that testify in court that we can look to as an example uh, of having a rigorous proficiency testing program? And one of the things you mentioned here, Brendan, in the paper is separating good examiners from bad, so that you can identify, you know, who's good, who can give good evidence, and you're really clear about saying. You know, good qualified examiners give good fingerprint evidence, and fingerprint evidence from those people are, is great evidence. But you know, what field of experts that testify in court have this already figured out? Uh, Glenn, you want to jump in, or do you want me to? I, I don't have an answer. I, I, I yeah. can't. I'm I'm racking my brain for a mm-hmm. field that has, I, I guess, rigorous proficiency testing that does testify. I mean, you know, there's lots of experts that testify beyond just forensics. But still, I, I, I don't know what field does proficiency testing in a rigorous way. Yeah, in our paper, we did, we did uh, reference a, um, a pretty rigorous ballistic test that was done in Europe as a proficiency test that I, I think if you take a look at it, you'll, uh, both the test and the results you'll find was much more not only rigorous but valuable as a, as a QA tool than CTS tests. That's one example. Um, the other examples we get, the other example we give in the paper is not uh, a testifying discipline per se. It's uh, the clinical lab experience where in 2007 they undertook a really comprehensive look at the proficiency test, important questions about it. Um, I'm not sure that there's the testimony component there, um, but certainly scientifically a, a pretty apt um, comparison or um, 
or a way to look at it is that that clinical testing review that we reference in our paper from 2007. And I saw that. And the reason I, I put on that, the, that testimony, you know, requirements, that testimony part of the, the question is that when you, when you get into an adversarial system, you know, things become a little bit more complicated in, in with that. So, uh, you know, it, it's easier to, uh, to follow along someone who's already, uh, who's already, you know, a little bit closer uh, in a scientific field, also having to deal with that, um, that adversarial system. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I mean, I guess the other, the other comparison would be, you know, this um, NIST DNA study that I talked about. So there was massive, massive failure on that study, in that study right. a, a, across the country. And examiners didn't stop get quali- getting qualified to testify. Juries didn't stop believing in DNA evidence and, uh, and just start, you know, disregarding it. The sky didn't fall the way maybe many in the field expected it when those kind of shocking results happened on that challenging test. All right. Well, Brendan, I, I, I really do thank you for you know your comments and your insight here. And it's so helpful having you who are very knowledgeable about the profession. You do. I think you would embarrass some of our listeners by how many articles that you've read <laughs> and are very knowledgeable about. And some of our listeners have not read those articles. I'm just wondering if you had any final thoughts about the, the article or, you know, next steps or, you know, anything you want to share with, with listeners and practicing fingerprint examiners. I can tell you that, you know, our approach to forensics starts with the science first. That's why I've read as many of the foundational literature and studies in the field as I can, because myself and my coworkers are really interested in the science of it which not only helps us kind of understand the evidence, but helps us understand uh, the examiners as well. So it's really important to me that we understand the, the literature and the science and start as that, uh, uh, that start with that as a foundation for kind of what we end up doing in court, whether it's litigating motions or a trial. Yes, we work in an adversarial system. Um, I know that probably uh, some of your listeners might object to our approach to um, litigating um, forensic evidence in general or fingerprint evidence and kind of uh, wonder why we do it to the level that we do. What I can say is this, um, the history of forensic evidence in the criminal justice system has not been one of uh, too much challenge or too much advocacy on the behalf of defendants, especially our indigent ones. It's been a history of too little um, I think the criminal justice system has been has been ill served by the lack of both understanding of science by defense attorneys and the lack of challenge to many forensic disciplines, not just fingerprints, but others. So our goal is to understand the science and then to challenge it where we think um, it makes sense for both our client and the case. But we we always hope to do that by um, hewing very closely to what we understand the science to be. Yeah, and I imagine there's probably a few listeners out there who go, whew, thank God that they're in uh, Illinois <laughs> and not in our neck of the woods. Hey, do you want to tell our listeners about that grant that you guys got? Yeah, so in my office, we've been lucky to be um, well-funded enough to have this forensic science division, but there are indigent defense agencies around the country um, that uh, don't have that kind of access and haven't been able to um, gain any type of competence in understanding forensic evidence or litigating it. And we're hoping to change that dynamic a little bit 
So we have started a, a forensic training institute where myself and my coworkers are going to go spend um, three-day periods at various um, indigent defense agencies around the country and kind of get them up to speed or at least more competent in understanding, evaluating, and litigating forensic evidence um, than they are now. It's our hope that, um, you know, a couple of years from now, there will be more agencies like ours that kind of understand this evidence and can meaningfully challenge it when necessary on behalf of their clients, in our case, on behalf of indigent clients. So now more than ever, Eric and I have been preaching forever, though, it is going to be imperative that agencies start to get on board, start to get accredited, examiners get certified, document your examinations, <laughs> have SOPs, read the article. I mean, all the things that, that of, of course, I mean, whether it's NAS report or PCAST report or, you know, this podcast or others, you guys aren't static anymore. You guys will be moving around and training others and taking your show on the road and, and teaching them the successes that you've had in, in your area and how how to address those same challenges in, in other other parts of the United States. And there's nothing special about us. I mean, I started out, as I said, flunking chemistry, and I was still able to kind of <laughs> to do this. And I think it's only because I had the time and resource and I think we're, we're hoping to provide some time and resource for other agencies so they can kind of do some of the same litigation. And for the examiners out there, this is to address, because there is bad forensic science going on. There is, if you just look at how, you know, a lot of bite mark evidence is still out there, but also, uh, you know, certain unaccredited labs are, are just doing poor work. If that's not you, if you're in an accredited lab, if you're at a good agency, you have nothing to worry about. Read the articles, learn how to testify, be prepared. You're fine. This is, you know, this is really, in my opinion, anyway, going after the bad forensic science that just remains unchallenged out there. Correct. Yep. And and you, you and I, Eric, we see it in the cases that we review. We we know it exists. I would like to think it's not the majority, but I, I all too often see it in testimony, depositions, and other various I'm, – I'm just amazed at some of the bad forensics, bad science that, that's being perpetrated with, within our field. Come on, people. Document your shit. <laughs> okay? <laughs> all right. So uh, again, and also just reiterate that. Thank you, Brennan, for, for coming on. Uh, really appreciate your time and staying up late with uh, with us as we're in three different time zones here. So, uh, Glenn, what else do you got to finish us off? Well, I, this is a great opportunity with Brendan on air to, to talk about the the class that uh, Brendan and I are teaching with, with Carrie Hall. Uh, the three of us have been teaching a three-day testimony class. We had our first run in Denver uh, a few months ago in um, back in September, and we're going to have two more in 2020. One of them is has just now posted to ronsmithandassociates.com, and that will be October in the Boston area. We're trying to get a second one in June, and hopefully that'll be in the Southern California area. So uh, this is a class that Brendan and I ha have 
work done in different ways because we've done little workshops and little mini versions of it. But it, it was great to be able to do that three day class with you, Brendan and Carrie. And I, I really I had a few bumps here and there, but I thought it went pretty well. <laughs> and we, we had uh, we had some 10 print examiners and fingerprint exa- latent fingerprint examiners in the course. And I think the, the course is much more geared towards latent fingerprint examiners but i think we were still able to even address a few temperant issues but i think many of the issues that we were raising around ace v these studies and so on were really more keyed in towards latent fingerprints i look forward to to hopefully attending at some point uh because uh now you know being in kind of a different role i i don't get to attend much training anymore but uh that would be you know near the top of my list of, of trainings to go to so if you have that opportunity, definitely get out there and, uh, you know, East or West Coast uh, and sign up for it. Yeah, and it, it was really helpful because just even in this episode, Brendan, the way you answered the questions and the advice, that practical advice that you were giving examiners, things they can say in the stand, uh, that's exactly what the class is designed around. They're either getting advice from a practitioner or a practicing attorney yep. on different ways to answer questions and different strategies when issues are raised. All right. So uh, listeners out there, if you have any questions for us on this article or for Brendan, we can forward them on to him. You know, anything about this topic, uh, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Uh, or just say hi to us on Twitter and Instagram, uh, which is at double loop pod. Uh, don't forget to also go to patreon.com and uh, help us keep the lights on here at this podcast. And, oh, the merch store, doubleitpodcast.com and Zazzle. You can find all of our new fingerprint designs. It should be up and ready right now. And I should, hey, by the time this airs, have a, a brand new design that I'm, I'm really, uh, really think is going to be fun. So, you know, go to all those places and uh, you know, interact with the show. Uh, and with that, remember the opinions expressed in the show belong to the speaker and not to anyone else that they may be working for or affiliated with. Thank you guys again, and uh, we'll talk to all your listeners out there real soon. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Bye, and uh, I had great fun. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye.